Hello, and welcome to the debut episode of Just Push Play, a music podcast. Today's guest is Jeffrey Lee Campbell. He's a guitarist, Broadway musician, composer, producer, and author. Wow, that was a mouthful. His book is Do Stand So Close, My Improbable Adventure as Sting's Guitarist. And I reviewed the book on my blog, Read, Rock, Repeat, and loved the book so much that I asked him to be my first guest. So there's no pressure, though, but <laughs> thanks for joining me, Jeffrey. <laughs> thanks for having me, Sherry. <laughs> so um, first off, I just want to say I love the book, and it's not going to be a two-hour conversation because, you know, we had this, uh, like, <laughs> this dialogue before and after the show <laughs> saying, right. okay, it's not going to be a two-hour long show. Because, right. well, I, I'd have to say that that I'm not, like, that interesting either. I don't know <laughs> people who right. would want to sit and listen to me for two hours. So, <laughs> Well, I can get pretty uh, verbose, but, uh, the, you know, I'm happy with keeping it short. Left to my own devices, I'll talk all day. So <laughs> you can reel me <laughs> well, in. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I yeah. think there's one topic that we can agree on, which which we'll get to a little bit later. That would okay. be Prince. I mean, we could probably talk about Prince for, like, oh, oh yeah. Huh? My hero. Yeah. Yeah, I know mine too. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, I. Okay, so like, let's jump into the book. Okay, first off, um, there's no filler in the book, which I really appreciate. Um, <laughs> there's no like, I was born to like a, you know, mother. Yeah, I, was, uh, I made I made a point to not do that. I remember reading a quote from Questlove one time, and he said. I always skip the first hundred pages of every memoir because it's always my grandfather fought in the fought in the war and my mother and you know and I've read these ones about their kindergarten friends and all that and I thought I really don't want to do that. I told my wife I said I don't want to write an I want to write a page turner not an eye roller. So I was like I wanted to get cut right to the chase. So I mean we're talking about Sting by I think page thirteen in my book. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean yeah, that, that's yeah. pretty quick. I mean it, it, yeah. it gives a brief description of your childhood and and you know high school days and and college, but then it go, gets like straight to the point, which is cool. Yeah. I mean you want a little yeah. background, but you don't want like the whole like history either. <laughs> well, part part of the reason I wrote the book, there's a few reasons, but people would always ask me, how did you end up with the Sting gig? And I thought this is such a convoluted story or such a crazy story of coincidences and luck in right place at right time so i thought you know what that's a good reason to write this book so now when people ask me how did you get that gig and i like read the book you know so uh, i tried to describe you know so it makes sense but yeah i, did, I tried not to like dwell on any non-essential information so uh-huh. I, uh, <laughs> like, I okay, you want to know? Here's the yeah, link to right. Amazon. <laughs> right. But I hate it when I'm reading a book and I'm constantly flipping around looking for, when is this chapter going to be over? I've got stuff to do, you know, and it's like, so I tried to write a book, as you know, it's more written in a journal format. So it's really bite-sized little anecdotes about my year on the road with Sting and how I landed the gig and all that. So it's it's you know I've had some people say oh man I couldn't put it down I read it straight through and most people do say oh I you know it's hard to put down so mission accomplished in that way because I did try to write a really breezy you know airport read or beach read but but it's not I don't think it's a shallow read but it's an easy or a, a breezy read I should 
people shouldn't be afraid of it. You know what I mean? It's like if you, you know, if you, if you're curious about the musician's life, about Sting, about the rock star life, it's an easy read. So, and it's not a real geeky read either. I stayed away from talking technical stuff about equipment and gear and music speak. You know, I, I wrote it for dreamers, not just for musicians. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you know, you started out as a, as a dreamer, really. I mean, yeah, you came yeah. to New York City at the invitation of a friend, and you came, stayed for two days, and you're like, I'm coming back there. So, I mean. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, it's, it. you know, as I say in my book, uh, it can be habit for me. You know, it's not for everybody, but by the time you, by the time New York gets to you, you're addicted to it. You know, I love it here. So, it's it's a challenge, the urban life, but there's so much exciting stuff happening here so i moved here uh in 1987 and said i would give it one year and now i've been here 32 years so Uh (laughs) yeah Yeah, Yeah. i mean i i lived um at uh one point in the poconos and would drive Uh into new york a lot Uh um right i was i was one of those um music journalists that you know there really wasn't much to do in the Poconos, so I'd have to go elsewhere to to find a good show mm-hmm. or or, or sure. see a concert. Sure. So, yeah. so um, yeah. New York was was my haven, and I mean, I went to like all the clubs there, like Limelight and on Sunday nights, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, you know, the debaucherous Limelight. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> so everyone... and you know, at the risk of sounding like you know the grandpa, it's like. New York has changed a lot in the scene. You know, I when I first came to New York, I used to romanticize, thinking, well, New York in the 40s and 50s must have been so exciting. And I have to say now, I look back at the New York of the 80s that I came to, and it was so exciting. But there were so many nightclubs, so many recording studios, so much work. And, you know, the world only spins forward, and but due to technology and numerous other things and high rents, it's not the scene it used to be. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. less music clubs. There's musicians. I mean, I'm lucky. I live in Manhattan, but most people, a starving artist, can't afford to live in Manhattan anymore. So, you know, it's the, the the artistic fabric has been kind of pushed out of the city by incredibly high rents. And uh, I walked by Colony Records the other day, which is the classic record store on 49th and Broadway, and it's a drugstore now. You know, so. Just the way it is. Well, you mentioned it. Yeah. You mentioned in the book about Manny's, and it's kind of interesting because one of my friends used to work at Manny's. Um, yeah. I think back in like the mid to late '80s, and um, mm-hmm. he loved it there. Like it was just like a yeah. whole different kind of scene back then, you know. So well, if you go over there now, Manny's is a dirt lot. It, the building's been completely torn down, and across the street mm-hmm. where Sam Ash was, it's been torn down too. The street, there's tumbleweeds going down 48th Street. It used to be rock stars walking down 48th Street. I mean, it was like maybe six, eight guitar stores. I remember the first day I, I came to New York, I was at 48th Street, and I saw Daryl Jones walking down the street who had played bass in Sting's first band, the Blue Turtles, and with Miles mm-hmm. Davis and uh, all kinds of John Schofield. And I was like, wow, there's Daryl Jones. I was like, I'm in the right place. I was so excited. So to go to 48th Street now is kind of sad. But again... That's that's progress. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it was the book is interesting in the respect that it has stories within the story. Like there's always, yeah. you know, another story around the corner or around, you know, like a, a turn of the page. There's always another story, mm-hmm. whether it's like the 
the antics that you got in with with your uh, touring, you know, with other touring members and mm-hmm. <laughs> or like well, and you know, it's or... funny. It, yeah, as I wrote it, what, what became apparent to me, and it was really surprising, most of the stories. Not all, but most are not on stage. The gigs were kind of the same. It was the life in between the gigs, the traveling, the, the you know, the loneliness, the being on the road, the air, the airports and the hotels. And I was thinking, wow, I don't have a lot of stories of on stage. It's more of like the life off stage for, you know, the 22 hours a day, 21 hours a day that you're off stage is really where all the, the interesting stuff happens. Because <laughs> a concert is kind of the same every night, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. there there are special moments, of course, you know, sure. as, as you sure. highlight in the book. Um, but, you know, like the infamous Saturday Night Live uh, oh, yeah. fiasco with the with the fire. And but, yeah. um, you know, G. G. E. Smith, incident, you know, coincidentally lived in the next town or is from the next town over from where I grew uh-huh. up. So uh-huh. he was like. He was like the the huge star from our area, and uh, sure. his family owned a, a shoe st- uh, like a tailor, like a cobbler store, like uh-huh. and like and his parents were really cool. But he was like the one that got out, you know. <laughs> well, and you know, I was a huge fan of his from his work with Hall and Oates, and I, I'm a big yeah. fan of Hall and Oates, and I think they write like quintessential pop music. They're just great craftsmen and great artists, but. Year, a few years ago, I went to see a Hall & Oates concert, and uh, and it was one hit after another. You're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this one. But what I found really interesting was most of the tunes, the guitar player had to play G.E. Smith's guitar solo from the record because G.E. was so melodic. He wasn't just, like, shredding or noodling. He would come up with these really creative parts that made the song. So I'm like, wow, here it is 20, 30 years later, and the guitar player's still playing what GE played on those Hall & Oates records because they were so iconic, his parts. So he, I, yeah. I love guitar players like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. So mm-hmm. um, the experiences that you had, I mean, were, were definitely, you know, something to be amazed by. I mean, just, you know, just from coming from your background and then you know, working so hard to get there. Who knew uh, only after a couple of months you would be, you know, from selling candy at a, you know, Broadway venue to, you know, mm-hmm. being on stage yeah. in, at Madison Square Garden, you know? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's what happened is like, as I said earlier, I moved here and I said, I'm going to give it one year. And as I say in my book, the eve of my one year anniversary, I was playing Madison Square Garden with Steam. And of course, uh, young cocky man that I was, I thought I had it all figured out. And again, as I tell people, the book is Shakespearean. It's about my climb up and down the ladder of success. So uh, I didn't have it figured out. It's, it's kind of hard, as I joke in the book, when you start at the top, there's only one direction to go. So one year into New York, I'm playing Madison Square Garden. So, I mean, what happens next? So it was a uh, it was an amazing thing to me and it was a, a lot of luck involved. And whenever friends would ask me that maybe I grew up in North Carolina and people from North Carolina would ask me, Hey, I'm thinking about moving to New York. What do you think? And I'm like, you're really asking the wrong guy. That's like asking a lottery winner. Should I buy a lottery ticket? Because I just yeah. felt like I won a million dollars, you know, but it's like my story was very rare. I kind of did it all backwards, but, uh, uh, <laughs> uh as I say in the book, opportunity knocks when it damn well pleases. So uh, I just, you know, I had my, the biggest gig of my life in my first year in New York. So, 
yeah, well, you know, mm-hmm. but you talk about the, you know, the highs and the lows of touring because, you know, t- people think that touring is, you know, an amazing experience and, you know, but, you know, I've been invited to and I, I've gone on tour with uh, with regional bands and, and national bands even and, man, y- you know, like you, you were lucky in the respect with, with Sting. It was, you know, pretty well, um, you know, maintained with planes and, yeah, and better sure. travel, but like the tour bus life is no fun, you know, yeah. like just. Well, and the just, tour bus, you know, even a tour bus is a notch up. I mean, before I moved to New York, I played in a regional band down in North Carolina and we drove around in a van and a truck playing fraternity parties and nightclubs. And we had seven guys, five guys in the band and two crew members. So there's seven guys on the road and we shared two hotel rooms every night. So we were sleeping uh-huh two guys to a bed for years. So yes, when I got on the sting tour and I'm staying in the four season hotel and I have, you know, room service and all that, it was incredible, but there was plenty of commercial airline flights, you know, it wasn't all private planes. So it was still, uh, you know, it is arduous. Even as I say in the book, touring is grueling, no matter how you do it. Now, if you are flying privately all the time, it definitely takes the stress out of things because you don't have to deal with the airports and all that. You just go straight to the plane, but yeah, it's still, it's not a natural life to live out of a suitcase and it sounds glamorous and being young and single, it was fun, but it was funny. It did get boring and tedious and lonely pretty quickly. You know, and people would think, and I, I talked to a fellow musician who, who I thought he put it well. He said, you're on a gig, you're sitting on a gig feeling miserable you're at you're at a gig that most people would kill to have and you're not happy and it's kind of uh, sobering to go wow it's not everything i thought it would be there's a, there's some downside to anything but it was still it was a great life and there's very few artists at sting's level so uh i i was able to do it you know in a first class way and to be so critically acclaimed and have so many fans it was it was the glamorous life for sure but it was it was. It can be grueling, nonetheless. Yes, and lonely, and and like you said, like it, Branford Marsalis got staying books, and you're like, ah, mm-hmm. you know, why is he getting on mm-hmm. books? But then you learn mm-hmm. that books are your best friend, especially on tour. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and as I point out in the book, it's 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 hard for people to even comprehend now, but it was pre-internet, and it's so there was you know you didn't carry a Kindle around with a hundred books on it or an iPod with 10,000 songs on it. It was like you carried physical books, you carried physical cassette play, uh, players and cassettes. Uh, the CD was just coming on the scene. Some guys carried CD players, but I mean, we didn't have cell phones or laptops or iPods or smartphones. So, you know, now most people get on the plane and they fire their iPad and watch a movie or whatever. Most planes have a, a TV screen in the seat in front of them, but Boy, back then it was—it does feel kind of like the, the dark ages when I think about it pre-internet. <laughs> we were in Europe. We yeah. were in Europe for three months, and as I would say, people was like, you know, I would get day-old Yankee scores from USA Today or whatever. You didn't know what sport, what sports or world news or anything. You're, you're yeah, because being on the other side of as, the moon. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not as instant as you know it is now. Yeah, I mean, with a, right, and I a and I talk to people now that. Yeah, and I talk to people now that walk around 
foreign countries with the app on their phone that teaches them how to say certain phrases. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that would have been nice. <laughs> you know, you can just point, you can right. type in what you want and point to your phone and somebody will understand what you're saying. But uh, right. we, we did not have that technology then. So me trying to like with my broken Spanish or broken whatever I was trying to speak, it was, you know, it was, but that's what made it kind of cool. I mean, you hear people talk about now lamenting the fact that since all cars have GPS, nobody gets lost anymore and they don't have any good stories. And it's like, we were kind of, we were winging it. So it was fun that way. It was, it was kind yeah. of adventurous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was telling someone earlier that I had taken like four years of Spanish in high school and a couple of years in college and even tutored it, but I hadn't used it in so long. So I'm lucky mm-hmm. if I could get out, like, I, I know like a couple of phrases, like, do you know where my pants are? And like, yeah, right. hello, yeah, yeah. how are you? And like, yeah. where's the bathroom? Yeah. You know, and right. That's but but much you can it. kind of recognize when you see a sign in Spanish or German or Italian, you kind of say, "Oh, I can kind of figure out what this is." But like I said in the book, you get to Japan and you're lost, or Rio uh-huh. or Brazil where they're speaking Portuguese, and Portuguese and Japanese were inscrutable for me. I just couldn't figure out what was going on at all. I kind of could <laughs> wing my way through Spanish or Italian places, but boy, uh-huh. Japan and Brazil were, were a challenge. And we started in Brazil. So, I mean, I was a kid who had never been off the eastern seaboard of the United States. And next thing I know, I'm in Rio de Janeiro, our first gigs in front of 250,000 people in a soccer stadium down there. So, uh, uh, as I joke in the book, I mean, every city we went to was a city I was crossing off of my list I'd never been to. New Orleans, Chicago, L.A., Paris, you know, all these great places. And every time we landed, Kenny Kirkland, the pianist, would say, hey, you ever been here before? And I was like, man, I've never been anywhere before. <laughs> this is all new. I'm one of the, I'm a hillbilly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had someone on the tour that would be like a – you know, take an adventure with you at all the time. That would be the masseuse, right? I mean, you and well, you and her. And a Europe, of... Yeah, she was on the European leg. Sting did take a masseuse on the European leg. She only traveled with us for three months, and then uh-huh. the rest of the time he just would, you know, he would whatever town he was in, he did have a, a massage. But uh, we did have the masseuse Sandy Aquila from uh, Omaha, Nebraska, who's a great friend, and it, it was good to have a non-musician along to kind of keep perspective so she was it was great having along and we did we had a lot of adventures together mm-hmm. well i mean since the um you know since the sting tour uh, you know things kind of leveled off and back to reality so yeah. you know you're in you're back in new york city so like what was your next turning point um for you well, I came back to New York. As I said, I thought I'd – here's the Shakespearean part. I thought I'd had it all figured out, as I say in the book. I thought I had I'd acquired lifetime membership in Club Rockstar, and it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. So I came back to New York, and I went from being the new kid in town to the new kid out of town. So I came back, and I really didn't have any connections. But I just kept sitting around, around waiting for the phone to ring. Oh, I'll get another big gig. And I did have calls. I had calls from Holland Oaks. I had calls from uh, – uh, Lisa Loeb, things like that that just didn't pan out. But in the meantime, you know, I, I kind of went through, I came home with a big pile of money and I was single and unemployed. So I just partied for a couple of years and then all of a sudden realized, oh, I, I've got to kind of start over. So I did. I completely started over and uh, played weddings. And again, it's it's humbling 
to walk past Madison Square Garden and say, I used to play in there as you're going to play some dive bar or driving by in your car to go to Brooklyn or the Bronx to play a wedding in your tuxedo. So I kind of did it out of order. But so posting, I, I, I hustled for about 10 years doing all the freelance work I could get my hands on. And then I started subbing on Broadway. And Broadway kind of opened up a new career for me. And it, I've been doing Broadway basically for the last 20 years. Playing wow, a show tonight, as a matter of fact. <laughs> oh, yeah? For um, which, yeah. Uh, which production? I'm, well, well, I was uh, – the last show that I had the steady job was School of Rock, but it closed in January. So what you do is you kind of go back into the sub pool. So when people need you, mm-hmm. you go in and sub. So tonight I will be performing Beetlejuice at the Winter Garden Theater, which ironically – between Mamma Mia and School of Rock, which were both at the Winter Garden Theater, I've spent 15 of my last 17 years in that theater. So I'm back there again tonight playing Beetlejuice. Uh-huh. Oh, that's awesome. I, I yeah. used to go see a couple of shows on Broadway. I, I mean, a lot, mm-hmm. actually. And I went to see a couple that you actually were um, gigging in, um, Saturday Night oh, yeah. Fever. And, oh, yeah, that was my um, first the, full time, yeah. Uh-huh. And The Life. Oh, the life, yeah. That was my first yeah. subbing one. That was a, yeah. That was about the prostitutions on Forty Second Street, the good old Times Square days. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, I I like Broadway's good for me. I live in Manhattan. I actually live near the theater district. I'm in Hell's Kitchen, so it's a ten minute walk. So it's a very easy commute for me. And so uh, I uh, I love playing Broadway. It's uh, it's uh, it appeals to my sense of order. You know, it starts at eight oh five and you're done at eleven ten thirty. You know, it's not. Whereas when I'm playing clubs, it's like you might go on two hours late or something like that. And after a while, that, that kind of beats me down. So I've enjoyed Broadway. And it's, again, it's a good steady job. It's very competitive. It's hard. It's hard to find work. When I first came to New York, Broadway was considered one notch above playing in a wedding band. It was not really considered to be a, a prestigious gig. But as technology is, you know, completely cleared out the music industry, you know, and now instead of musicians being hired to play on movie soundtracks and commercials and records, they're using computers. So there's no work except on Broadway. So the level of talent on Broadway is so incredible now. And it's a destination gig. I mean, it used to be kind of a place where the older musicians, you know, kind of went to uh, out to pasture. But now there's guys coming right out of Berkeley, Juilliard, wherever, and coming straight to Broadway. You know, 25-year-old musicians on Broadway pits. So it's a real hotbed over there now of great musicianship. And, you know, people, I think it's a real renaissance on Broadway now with shows like Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen. You know, it's some, some interesting stuff being done. Yeah, I mean, everyone wants to get to the great white way, really, you know. I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> Well, you know, and I not mean, unlike going, everybody wants everybody wants to tour with Sting, and you get there and go, wow, it, you know. Uh, as I joke with people, I go, my dreams have come true. The bad news is that the view's not near as nice as I thought it would be. And it's you know, Broadway's the same thing. It's a gig, you know. You're doing it night after night after night, and you know, this some of those theaters are old and damp and kind of uh, cluttered and cramped. So it's you know, it's glamorous. It's good for me. Whenever I have friends come to town to visit and come to see a show I'm in, they remind me how cool my job is because to me, it uh-huh. becomes my daily grind. But when you see, it's like whenever I see a tourist walking down the street and looking at the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty and I see the wonder in their eyes, I go, oh, yeah, I forget that sometimes because the cost of admission of living in New York is you have to kind of trade in your wonder because you you got your head down working all the time. And uh mm-hmm. 
sometimes I look around and go, well, I wish I could visit New York, you know, because I live here. I can't visit it anymore. And it's such a great city. So you are right. The Great White Way, you know, all so much exciting stuff happening here. But when you live here, you you can get a little tunnel visioned. I try not to. Uh-huh. I like a jog, a jog on the Hudson River most days, and I can see the Empire State Building and the Statue of Liberty and the World Trade Center. Uh, it's like it reminds me I'm in a great place and in, in an exciting city. Yeah, uh, definitely. I agree with that completely. I mean, I whenever I would drive in, I would always drive in um, on the West Side Highway over, you yeah. know, George Washington. Mm-hmm. And every mm-hmm. time, you know, in the beginning, I would be like, oh, this is so awesome. But after doing it for so many years, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get there and then get home, you know. Yep. <laughs> but right. but yeah. then But then I left for a while and came back and I'm like, Oh, this is what I remember. Like this is so cool. Like this is this is why well, I love it, you know. Well, and you know, people send pictures of the Grand Canyon or Hawaii and they're beautiful, but I, I can look at the New York skyline at nighttime and, and be just as awestruck by it. I think it's so beautiful and uh inspiring. So I, there's a lot of beauty in the urban life too and I feel lucky that like I said, thirty two plus years in, I still have the love affair I, I that I have with the city. Uh, a lot of people are like, oh, I've had enough, but I still get a tingle. You know, there's days where I'm walking to work and I go, I'm getting ready to go be in a Broadway show tonight. This is really cool. I'm walking past the long line of tourists to get in, and I know the stagehands, and I know the doorman, and I'm going, this is a pretty cool existence. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed, agreed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it's your job, you know. I mean, I don't know, that, yeah. you know, uh, whether you're a rock star or a movie star, you know, you're still doing a job, so. Yeah, or you you work in a cubicle from nine to five. A job is a job mm-hmm. is a job. You know, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter well, what you, it you becomes, do. You... It becomes your normal. I mean, I always joke. I say, I think that's it's human nature that if we had to work one minute a week, we would eventually say, "Man, I need a week off." It's just the way it is. You know, it's yeah. like uh, our job becomes kind of this. Maybe it's even we we perceive it as being harder than it is sometimes. And again. uh, my job entails me going and sitting in a, a Broadway pit with a pair of jeans and a black T-shirt on and playing guitar for two hours and then coming home. So that's, you know, it's a good life. As I say to people all the time, it beats working for a living. You know, I know how good <laughs> I've got it. I'm very grateful. <laughs> so during the, the tour, there would be like itineraries and, um, you know, like little jokes uh, or little, I don't want, I, I guess I can't say jokes, but little like jabs towards like uh, yeah yeah right members of the band but there was also like in the bio pages of the tour program they asked like the band members what their guilty pleasure was and right. and right. you said madonna but someone said prince and i was like prince he's someone's yeah. guilty pleasure like like you said too like prince yeah. is like a yeah. god <laughs> what do you mean yeah. guilty yeah. pleasure well, you know, that, that era of Sting's band was definitely very jazz-centric, so that was said by one of the saxophone players that was subbing for Branford Marsalis, and he's a very deep jazz player, so I guess he found Prince to be kind of commercial, but uh, I went to jazz, I studied jazz at the University of Miami, and I dropped out after three years because I just had the revelation, as I said in my book, I'm not a jazzer, I'm a hardcore pop and rock and soul R&B guy, so you know, there's nothing better to me than a great four-minute pop tune. And 
Prince, as I say in the book, he was my Beatles. I was a little too young for Beatlemania. So by the time I really understood music, I don't remember the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Uh, by the time the Beatles broke up, I was just starting to play in bands. So the Beatles didn't inform me like some of my friends that are a few years older. I mean, I have friends that say, oh, man, if you've been around for Buddy Holly or Elvis or the Beatles, you wouldn't have believed it. And I go, that's the way I feel about Prince. You waited for every record to come out. You didn't know what he was going to do next. And I mean, he is a virtuoso on every instrument and a great entertainer, incredible vision. I mean, I could just go on and on about the guy. Mm-hmm. Now, let me get your, your thoughts on this before we go into the, the next topic of, of, you know, your book and, and life after the book. Um, so since Prince passed away, um, the family has re-released or uh, released items that were in his vault. Uh, what are mm-hmm. your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I had read that his vault was extensive. And, you know, uh, you, if you look at whose who's, uh, estates, like Elvis, Marilyn Monroe, Michael Jackson, huge estates. They make tons of money in death. And so Prince's estate, I think, Jimi Hendrix, you know, I have a Jimi Hendrix lunchbox. So, I mean, they, uh, there's big money in it. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I assume that, uh, you know, if Prince had explicitly said he didn't want it released, maybe that wouldn't be released. To my knowledge, there was no uh, instruction for it not to be released. I haven't, uh-huh. you know, there's a lot of reissues coming out that I'm excited to hear. Uh, there was a recent release of demos of a lot of songs he had written that I was excited to hear. And then I was a little disappointed that the demos felt so much like the original. I thought, well, there's digital recording for you that, uh, you know, the demo of the glamorous life by Sheila E sounded a lot like the glamorous life by Sheila E, whereas it wasn't some him strumming a guitar into a cassette, but that yeah. one record they released was just him playing piano and singing on cassette, which is amazing yeah. too. So, yeah, uh-huh. I mean, there was, yeah, uh, I mean, was this, what was the Spike Lee movie, Black Klansman, in the closing credits, they had Prince playing old gospel tune, Mary, Don't You Weep, just on piano and yeah. singing, and I'm I'm getting chills right now just even mentioning it. It was so deep, you know. Yeah, I, I, I concur. <laughs> I concur yeah. with that. He's such a I mean, deep, deep guy, and, and people will tell me, oh, this so-and-so's the new Prince. I won't name any names. This guy's the new Prince, and I just always shake my head and go, send up a flare when they write little red Corvette. You know, I'm just like, uh-huh. I haven't heard it yet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I hear you there. Um, yeah. You know, like I, as a, as a fan, I'm like ec- extremely ecstatic for like all the stuff. Like I even have like the Prince, the Prince Funko pop for crying out loud, you know, like, oh, wow. I don't know like, that. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's how nerdy mm-hmm. I am. And, mm-hmm. and I have like, uh, you know, like, the movie and you know disclaimer i saw the movie like about eight times in 1984 when it came out and i was Mm -hmm. 13 Mm -hmm. so you know i i brought like a permission letter for my mom to go see it i'm like okay right (laughs) well put it in perspective for me i mean I, i would go see a lot of rock concerts when i was a teenager uh but you know usually once and that was enough but i saw prince's let's see Controversy 1999 and Purple Rain Tour. I mean, every time he came out, I went and saw him for three straight tours. So, uh, I just you know, he was a he was in a league of his own, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. 
And as I, as I stepped back from it, I was going, because it felt so fresh to me, as I step back and go, he's taking a little bit from Jimi Hendrix and a little bit from James Brown and a little bit from, you know, Miles Davis. And I was like, you know, he's just, I thought he was the quintessential artist in my mind. And his weird records, I loved his weird records. Uh, I, uh, I think 1999 is a masterpiece. And I like the, mm-hmm. the weird tunes on the record, you know, so. Yeah, huge fan, and 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 you know the facts don't lie. The guy could play his ass off, so uh, it's not yeah. like oh he was a big pop star. I mean he could play his instruments, you know, and not only a great performer but a great musician. Yeah, like if if you've seen, I'm, I'm sure you have the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where he just like rips oh, yeah, on sure. that solo while my guitar yeah. gently weeps, and everyone's just or, like. <laughs> Mouth or how deep. about the Super Bowl yeah. halftime in the rain? Uh-huh. You know, the Super Bowl yeah. thing, just unbelievable. I mean, every year I'm disappointed at the Super Bowl halftime show. Go, nope, not Prince. <laughs> not Prince, yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, besides the Broadway, what are you doing now? I, I know that you have a, a studio, so do you still do a lot of composing and producing and, well, and stuff like actually, that? Actually, I lost my I lost my studio lease a couple of years ago. I had a great setup, and then the, I lost the lease on the place. And, again, I started looking around for a new space. In Manhattan, re, re, real estate prices are just so ungodly. So I kind of – I had been producing some young artists that had moved on to other things, and I lost my lease. So I'm not really doing much producing right now. Right now. I've spent a lot of energy on my book and promoting my book. And I'm actually in the process of doing an audio version of my book that I would love to have done by the holidays. So uh, – uh, because people say, oh, when's the audio version coming out? And I started thinking, I should do that. So it's me narrating the book. So it's me telling the stories with the emphasis and the humor that I think was trying to get into print. So I've been spending <laughs> a lot of time. Uh, I've finished recording it. Now I'm doing the editing. So, uh, oh, but, very uh, cool. Yeah, audio I'll version. Look it's, to it's that. Me. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's me with my southern drawl telling those stories. So. <laughs> Hopefully a, a new twist on it, you know, it'll give a different insight. So, so I've been yeah. doing that in Broadway and uh, trying to again after being I started playing professionally at age 13, and without doing the math, I've been in New York 30 some years. So I, I'm enjoying kind of taking my foot off of the gas a little bit and being very choosy about things I do. I'm not as much building my career now as being enjoying the fruits of my labor and being very choosy about projects that I do. So. Well, that's a good thing to have. That's a good place to be in, definitely. Yeah. So that so, yeah, it is. And you know, if not now, when? And it's the kind of thing where I go, I, I have the resources that I don't have to uh, say yes to every gig. When I came to New York, any time the phone rang, the answer was yes. You know, you'd take any gig, and now uh, I'm able to be choosy, and I like that. And uh, uh, it's uh, so it's allowing me to. I'm trying to you know, trying to slow things down a little bit and. As people said to me, uh, friends said to me one time, you're not a human doing, you're a human being. So I'm trying to be a little bit more and do a little less. Uh, uh, People will come see me on Broadway or whatever and say, oh, what's on your bucket list? And I say, playing Frisbee with my dog. I don't have a dog or a Frisbee, but that's on the bucket list, you know. (laughs) So what do you do to wind down? I mean, uh well, I enjoy watching baseball. I love watching the Yankees. So now we're coming up on the postseason. So sports, growing up in North Carolina, I grew up a North Carolina Tar Heel fan. So I grew up on sports. And sports is my uh, 
kind of my release. And I have a good friend who's a drummer, and he keeps saying, the only way you maintain your sanity is to have a hobby. And I look around and go, you know, I don't have a hobby. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, I want to do something non-music related just to, you know, to kind of balance it out. So uh, a lot of my friends have raised children. I I don't have any children, so I haven't raised a family. So I've been like all music for decades. So since Mm -hmm. my early teens, it's been nothing but music. And, uh, you know, with all humility to, to maintain excellence is, is a real, is a full-time job. It's uh, my brother's also a musician and he was telling me how like when classical musicians retire, they never play in public again because they'd like to practice four or five hours a day before they perform. Uh, so maintaining the level that's required at New York, at the New York level is, is a real challenge. And there's always, uh, it, it feels like athletics to me. I say that to people a lot when they go, well, you can be a musician forever. I go, yeah, but there's always another generation coming up behind you that's faster and taller and uh, the fire's burning bright in their belly. So I'm trying to, uh, you know, I've had a great run and I'm trying to grow old with some dignity and still play gigs, but not, you know, I'm not out there throwing elbows trying to get every gig anymore. Mm-hmm. And you're not out until like 5 a.m. every night, you know, playing no. in bars and <laughs> stuff like that. Well, and again, I don't, I don't want to sound like grandpa, but my friends, my younger friends that have bands, and they'll invite me out to uh, uh, see their band. And I go, man, and they're like, why don't you ever come out? And I'm like, I was you. And I, I'll tell these guys, like I was talking to a guy the other day, and I was like, when I got the Sting gig, he was three years old. So, and these guys are now there in New York and. And, and it's so full of uh, energy and excitement, and, and you know they're like, "Oh, you got to come out, man!" I'm like, "Dude, you were wearing diapers." I was doing that, so um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I I wear my uh, badge of honor and courage. It's like I did that, you know. I paid those dues and I did it. So I am not doing the club hanging and the late nights and the loud music, and you know, it's uh, it's it's a bit of a busman's holiday for me. I don't mean to you know, destroy anybody's illusion of it. But it's, I always say about the problem with being a musician, it's like being a magician. And so when you go see other music, I mean, if you're a magician that goes to see a magician, you know how they're pulling the rabbit out of the hat. You know how they're sawing mm-hmm. the lady in half. So it kind of takes the, the fun out of it. Whereas I watch baseball or something like that, and I don't know anything about it. So it's really exciting for me. But music, it's kind of hard to, uh, I saw an interview with uh, John Williams on CBS Sunday Morning last week, and he was talking about yeah. whenever he goes to hear music, he's talking about, oh, that F sharp's a little out of tune. Oh, how did they go to that chord? And that's the problem. Your brain won't shut off. To, it's, it's, it's your job. It's not, it's not uh, you know, it's not, you're not doing it for enjoyment. It's what you have learned and spent your whole life doing, and that commitment to it takes away some of the uh, mystery and the uh, – uh, you know, it, 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 in other words, it's, it's, it's a job, you know, and so it's a busman's holiday for me a lot of times to go hear music. Now, there are certain people that I can go and just enjoy, like if I go see classical music or the opera or something like that, because it's so out of my realm that I can experience like a lay person. But going to hear a rock band, unfortunately, you go, yeah, I've heard this tune before, <laughs> you know, yeah, everything's yeah. rehashed. Uh, uh-huh. I read a quote one time said, people over 40 don't like new music because they've already heard it before. And it's like hemlines, they go up and down or lapels, you know, and we can always, you can hear a new artist and point to 
you know, when you listen to Greta Van Fleet, you're going, gee, where did they get that sound? Oh, how about Led Zeppelin? <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's not that hard to identify the, uh, the influences. And if you've lived through Led Zeppelin, when a new band comes along, that sounds like Led Zeppelin, or if you live through Al Green or Marvin Gaye, uh, you know, it's hard for me to get excited when somebody starts ripping off their sounds. I'll just go to the source and listen to a Marvin Gaye record instead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'd have to say that there are a lot of musicians out there that are really good and, and unique. But, yes, there are a lot of throwbacking musicians, too, that you're like, oh, okay, that sounds like, like you said, that sounds like uh, Smokey Robinson or that sounds like T-Rex right. or, you know, yeah, they're right. the, but, They're great bands, but let me say, you know. I did have a realization. I remember when Justin Timberlake was really busting on the scene, and I was like, this is warmed over Michael Jackson. Why do I need to listen to this? And then I thought, but the people that are really loving this weren't around for the Michael Jackson phenomenon. And the mm-hmm. same with Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga is the new Madonna. I mean, we could argue that she's a better musician, but my point is she feels that her fan base, were they were in diapers when Madonna was big. So, you know, it's, it's fair that every generation has their uh, – whether it's Marvin Gaye or Michael Jackson or Madonna or whatever. And I'm sure that people older than me would look at that stuff and go, ah, it's just warmed over Jackie Wilson or whatever, you know? So uh, I I get the need for these artists to, uh, I I don't, I don't blame them for sounding like it's a bit of a retread because that's what music is. I mean, we're still dealing with a certain parameters of Western harmony and all that. So to, I don't know that you can really uh, reinvent the wheel. So I don't begrudge younger people, you know, when I talk to people and they go, I don't get that Lady Gaga record or whatever, she wasn't making it for you. <laughs> or rappers, you know, uh, young rappers, Frank Ocean, I was a big fan of, and all my friends saw him on the Grammy and hated it. And I was like, you guys sound so old. He's just doing something new. And I, uh, I pointed out to my friends that were, uh, you know, in their 40s and their 50s that always complained about how bad the Grammys are. I said, you know, when the Beatles were on the Grammys in the late 60s, people that were 50 years old had been listening to Glenn Miller most of their life. And I'm sure they hated Strawberry Fields forever. So just go home and be quiet. Well, the funny thing is, is like in, in my um, grandmother's um, era, you know, she was very much into like the Broadway show tunes and like um, – yeah the epic like uh film soundtracks and and opera but when michael jackson came around she was like she was dancing around she was like this is like the best thing i've heard like when off the wall Mm -hmm. came out you know because in in my household you know music was on all the time and when michael jackson came out she's like i like this you know and it's like go graham you know like that's awesome well well, that's you know it's the old cliche there's two kinds of music good music and bad music and that's what i tell you all the time it's like if i like it i don't care you know uh Billie Eilish, who I think uh, her record sounds great. She was on Saturday Night Live last week, and I didn't yeah. think that live it really translated very well. But I think her record sounds really fresh. So uh, I tell people that all the time. If I put on a record and go – or put on a record. If I stream an album, you know, it shows – I'm thinking about my turntable still or my CD drive. But uh, I remember feeling that way about Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. I was like, wow, I've never heard this before. So I get excited when I hear something that I feel is fresh, and I'm always open-minded. When I hear stuff that sounds cynical, I don't like it so much. But fresh mm-hmm. stuff, I'm like your grandma. You know, yeah, I'm I'm ready for another Michael Jackson to come along. I'm all ears. So uh, yeah. Yeah. when it's good, it's good. Yeah. 
And the, 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 I think that you can draw a thread through the good music and you, what you hear is the honesty of it, whether it's, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra or Johnny Cash or John Coltrane or Prince. They have all got the same quality that it's got this kind of real sense of truth and honesty in it, I think. So that's what I listen for. Yeah. So um, going back to your book, uh, Do Stand So Close to Me, have you kept in contact with any of the uh, members of, of the group that you were involved in on tour? Do you ever see or, well, or talk to any of them? One of the road crew guys works over at the Ed Sullivan Theater. He did David Letterman, and now he does Stephen Colbert as audio guy. So he and I see each other quite a bit. The road manager was in town recently. The guy who wrote all the, the zingers and the itinerary was actually – he lives in Florida, but he was in town with Sting. So I got together with him. Uh, I don't really – you know, as I say in the book, it's kind of army buddies. Even as close as you are, everybody goes their own separate way. Unfortunately, Kenny and Delmar, both keyboards have passed on. So, uh, you know, we've lost four or five people that were on the tour and various – you know, a couple of musicians and crew people and all that. But – uh I see. I don't see Sting. I, I, last time I saw Sting was maybe five years ago when he was doing the last ship on Broadway, and I went to see that, which I really enjoyed, and we hung out for a bit afterwards. So, uh, but you know, our, our paths don't cross, and it's again, it's kind of like being in the army together or going to college together, and you're really close. But then when it ends, everybody moves on with their lives. I, I do. I've stayed in touch with uh, a couple of the band members, you know, via social media, but. We don't have a reunion every year or anything like that. Right, right. But I did see, um, I guess, a a few months ago, maybe, maybe even going into last year, that um, you connected with um, Dolette McDonald. Yeah, Dolette and I have stayed in touch, and uh, she was in New York, and she was passing through, and we got together and had lunch and had a great time. And I saw recently where she's going to be playing in New York in November, so I'm already marked my calendar to go see her. But. uh, I have stayed in touch with her and Sandy Sings Masseuse, who's in Omaha. She and I stay in touch. Uh, and then Tomo, the the crew guy that works over at the Ed Sullivan Theater. But, uh, you know, the, uh, I would love – I mean, it was such an amazing year of my life. And, uh, you know, I'm very sensitive. I don't want people to think I'm trying to relive my glory year like the, the high school football quarterback or whatever. It was just <laughs> such a special year. I, I thought it deserved – I'm not trying to live in the past, but I thought that there was a lot of good life lessons in it and some interesting stories. And, you know, when you're hanging out with Bruce Springsteen in Africa or Eric Clapton in Tokyo, it's worth writing about. So I wrote the book not to relive my glory days, but just kind of it was very cathartic for me. And it's nice from a legacy aspect to put it on paper. You know, uh, the stories are now on paper. So uh uh, but as much as I would still love to be a part of the machine and all that, not necessarily won't be on the road, but I mean, if you have to think about it, it's been 30 years since I did that tour. So Sting's been around the world 30 more times since then, at least, you know, so life moves <laughs> yeah. on for everybody. Yeah. So, uh, he's had a lot of bands, uh, uh, and we've all done a lot of different things, but it, it was a special time and a special band. It was really cool because, you know, he was just two years removed from the police, so he was still a huge rock star. And, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. We, we did Saturday Night Live, but there's no Jay Leno or David Letterman or anything like that because back then the big rock stars didn't do late-night TV shows. That was considered for the new and up-and-coming artists. So I wish there was more uh, 
footage of us performing, but there is some great stuff on YouTube. If you go to and just Google the Nothing Like the Sun tour, there's some great footage, and they've remastered a bunch of stuff that from the Amnesty tour with, you know, Bruce Springsteen singing Every Breath You Take with us and stuff like that. So there's some fun stuff out there. Yeah, and even if you go onto your website, jeffreyleecampbell.com, yeah. you can yep. find a like little wing on there, which is probably yeah. off of um, the album. That's probably one of my favorite songs off of the album, even though it's a cover. I I, mm-hmm. I love it. I love the song. And well, you and know, like, well, I was gonna say that song is plays a big part of the reason why I ended up in his band. And it's I talk in the book about. It. I remember hearing that too when I was like ten years old and going, wow. So the fact that Little Wing has kind of followed me through uh, my life in and, and, and various places, and, and that was the reason why – one of the reasons he needed a guitarist and one of the reasons he I met him through a connection because it was the Gil Evans Orchestra on that song on the Nothing Like the Sun album, the Little Wing cover. And I was friends with a member of Gil Evans' band, and that's how I met Sting. So it's it's all in the book. But Little Wing, again, if you remember in the book, we weren't even supposed to play that on Saturday Night Live. We were supposed to play Be Still My Beating Heart, which was the second single. And then Sting just kind of like uh, all of a sudden when they goes, let's play Little Wing instead. So, you know, it was an amazing – there's some – if I say so, I'd go back and read the book. You know, I've, again, I've been over it because I've been doing the audio version of it. And just the story of Saturday Night Live alone with the building catching on fire and us doing Little Wing and Hiram Bullock sitting in the audience. I'm like, it sounds like I'm making this stuff up, and I was there. <laughs> <laughs> it's too hard to believe sometimes. I'm like, nah, come on, you're exaggerating. I'm like, no, it's true. <laughs> it's there, and G.E. Yeah. Smith watched yeah. me play too. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Well, that's the same. You're hanging out, and yeah, and you're in Steve Martin's dressing room, and then the building catches on fire, and then you rush back upstairs, <laughs> and there's Hiram Bullock in your dressing room, and he played guitar on the album Little Wing with Sting, and just and he, I was a big fan of his. He was the Paul Schaefer's guitarist. So I was a huge fan of the Paul Schaefer yeah. band on David Letterman. I watched that show religiously. So uh, all of a sudden. I remember hearing a rapper say one time, and I thought this is so true, he said, your idols become your rivals. And that's what's beauty of the music business. All of a sudden, I mean, the fact that I was on stage with Sting, give me a break. I remember standing, waiting in line for Synchronicity to be released for the record store to open the door so I could buy a vinyl copy of Synchronicity. So, I mean, I was a huge police fan. And then all of a sudden, next thing I know, I'm playing with Sting. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would have never yeah. in my wildest dreams expected that to happen. Talk so, about full circle guess, moment right there. You know? Yeah, well, that's what I say. New York, it, you know, amazing things happen here. And it's, it's you know, moving here was kind of like buying the lottery ticket. You know, it's uh, it's hard from North Carolina to end up on a sting tour, you know. So uh, coming to New York was the the spark that got it all in motion. And then I got really, really lucky. I was tall enough to ride the ride. I was talented enough. But there was a lot of luck at play, so that's yeah. You know, you got to be good and lucky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good, good yeah. only takes you so far. I think luck yeah. is, is like yeah. a whole a whole other level. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, the reason I mean in the book, it's uh, the reason I ended up meeting Sting is because another guitarist quit a gig and I was the second choice, and and so those are the kind of things you can't plan out in your life. You, know, you can't plan out for somebody else to quit or, you know, other things to happen. So it's just kind of showing up and being ready, I guess, but uh, boy, it requires, you know, everybody needs some luck and that's, uh, 
right place at right time is is Well, so, I, I, I mean, encourage everyone. Summer. Oh, go ahead. Look, I don't know if you. Yeah. The Andy Summers book was totally that. Uh-huh. I haven't read uh, that yet. No. It's really good, and it's, the title is "One Train Later." And what he means is he got on the metro in London, and Stuart Copeland was sitting on the subway, and so they started talking. And his whole premise is, "What if I gotten on one train later? I never met Stuart Copeland." You know, so. Yeah, or a, like a Bohemian Rhapsody story of of how Freddie Mercury met Queen, you know. So yeah, yeah, it's so. you know nobody's born a rock star or a great gig. They show up and meet people, and you know, uh, and then you know, and then you're you know, I, whether it's Sting or John Bon Jovi or Bruce Springsteen, they were all blue collar musicians just like everybody else, and then they called a break, and they had the talent to carry it across the goal line. So. Yeah, John Bon Jovi was like someone else that you worked with too. Um, you yeah, know, you yeah. gave him a couple of guitar lessons and stuff like that. Well, actually, a, cool. a few years of guitar lessons, and we got to be really good friends. And uh, that's, uh, as I say in the book, it's like moving to New York is the smartest thing I ever did because all of a sudden I'm ending up hanging out with John Bon Jovi and on his helicopter with him or in his penthouse and going, "How did I get here? I'm just a little kid from North Carolina. What am I doing in John Bon Jovi's helicopter?" But uh, <laughs> another new york yeah, blessing yeah. yeah it's funny i knew john bon jovi's brother who was a manager of oh, yeah. one of the bands that uh-huh. i played on my radio show and uh-huh. he would uh-huh. always ask me oh john's in town do you want to meet him and i'd always tell mm-hmm. him no and mm-hmm. then another phone call oh john's going to be here do you want to meet him and i'd say no and then finally i think after like the fifth or sixth time he asked me, you know, like, why do you keep saying no every time I ask you if you want to meet my brother? And I said, well, because I could pick up the phone and call a publicist if I want to meet your brother. I'm like, I'm not mm-hmm. going to use you to meet your brother. Right. Because right. all, all right. I want to do is, like, help help out your band. And he's like, mm-hmm. huh, that's the coolest that's damn not, thing I've ever yeah. heard. And I'm like. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, and. and it's that's respecting people that way. And, and that's what is interesting. You know, uh, one of the secrets I think of succeeding when you're around people like John Bon Jovi or Sting is you, you certainly can't be starstruck. You have to be a peer and treat them. I mean, I've known John for years, but I don't have one photo of me and John cause I would never say to him, Hey man, let's pose for a selfie. You know, that's not the kind of relationship we have. So it's yeah. like, you don't, you know, they're, they, you have to treat people with respect and, and people, they, they just want to be normal as much as possible. So it's a, it's a fine line. And I talk about it in my book, how it's hard to kind of zig and zag with, you know, rock stars, egos and their needs. And you're uh, having to be confident yet deferential at the same time. So, yeah. Well, I encourage, you know, I I definitely, I come home and pinch myself sometimes, but you have to act totally cool when you're, Oh yeah, I'm hanging out with Eric Clapton. Oh yeah, cool. What's up, man? And you're like, oh, my God, is Eric Clapton? <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've I've certainly had those moments too, where I'm like calm, yeah. cool, and cl- collected. And the next morning, I'm yeah. I'd be like, wait, I just met Steve Perry, or yeah. I just met yeah, right, you know, sure. <laughs> or I just I met just think it's one. so cool oh, to meet those people that meet those people that that were there and they lived it. You know, you. I mean, I've seen Paul McCartney walking down the street a couple times in New York and going. You know, that's a beetle right there. Or 
remember mm-hmm. playing a wedding one time, and, and Ted Kennedy was there. And I'm like, that's Senator Ted Kennedy, you know, brother of Bobby and John. It's like it's just cool to be in the presence of people that have been a part of history and seen history. And so uh, – and, and you know, they're normal. But like I said, you see Paul McCartney walking down West 52nd Street by himself, nobody with him. It was right after 9-11. And there was Paul just walking down the street, and then my wife and I were walking down the street. We're going, look, there's Paul McCartney just wandering down the street, and I was thinking, that's the guy, you know. And uh, it's it's so cool, and you, you do have again, you're not allowed to be awestruck. And I talk about that in my book that I was constantly around stars that I had to pretend like I was being, you know, cool, whether it was Spike Lee or Michael Douglas or who, Steve Martin, and trying to act cool around those guys is hard. <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> Yeah, it is exhausting because you're like, okay, am I do, am I sitting here and do I look normal? Right. You know, right. <laughs> like you said, you didn't even know if you were holding like the magazine up the right way right. with, right. with Steve, yeah, Steve Martin. With Steve yeah, Martin. I'm in Steve Martin's dressing room, pretending like I'm reading a magazine, but I'm not reading. I'm watching Steve and Steve Martin rehearse their lines for a Saturday Night Live skit, and once again, I'm like, how did I get here? I feel like David Byrne and stuff. What is it? Uh, What's the song, Once in a Lifetime? How did I get yeah. here? <laughs> I feel that way a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely encourage people to read your book because, I mean, they have a lot of funny, funny stories in there. And But, you know, parts of it are, are poignant, too, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. um, parts of it really get down into, like, the nitty-gritty of, of what uh, – life is like on the road and it's not all glamorous all the time, you know? So I had, I I had one friend who read it. I had one friend who read an early draft of it or, or one of the later drafts, but he said, man, I really like the book, but that one story in Japan is so sad. I think you should take it out. And I said, if it made you sad, that's exactly why I'm leaving it in there. So it is, you know, it's the underbelly of it too. I didn't want to just make mm-hmm. it uh, fluffy. So like I said, it's, it's, on a deeper level, it's a coming of age. I mean, everybody has that story. We're young knuckleheads, and we learn life sometimes the hard way. So that's really what the story's about. It just happens to have a few rock stars along the way in it. So. Yeah. But well, I appreciate, I I appreciate people, your support. Yeah. 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 Well, I encourage everyone to visit your website, jeffreeleecampbell.com. There's a lot of information on there about you yeah. um, and a couple of videos, including a, a adolescent um <laughs> version yeah, of yeah. sex machine which cannot be yeah. overlooked um <laughs> yeah yeah i and, wish i had video I only have audio of that i wish i had video but uh yeah i've, I've got that so uh yeah the website i kind of put together a page of companion videos i've read a book recently it was actually the history of louis louis and as i was reading it I went on Spotify and YouTube and kind of would look things up and they talk about, yeah, even Barry White covered Louie Louie. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. But sure enough on Spotify, there's Barry White doing Louie Louie. So the internet is a great companion for reading things. So, you you know, you can look videos up and listen to versions of songs and all that. So uh, that's what people said to me. Oh yeah. Every time I'd read a story, I'd go to YouTube and see if I could find it. So I kind of put together a companion page on my website to, you know, some of the highlights of the, the tour in the book that there's accompanying videos but uh yeah uh and there's also a link to buy the book on my website so people can go to amazon or just go to my website and order it through amazon so yeah that was the next question how can people order your book so obviously through your website or um, by going to amazon and um you know i also encourage people to check out your audio book when it releases so 
Let yeah, us know when I'll that keep happens. you posted on that. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, I'm ho- I'm shooting for the end of the year, but it's turning out to be more of you know I, I'm used to editing four minute songs, and I figured this book's probably about a ten ma- ten hour audio book. So it's like editing a ten hour song. <laughs> so yeah, you, all of a sudden you realize, wow, this is a lot of words. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for stopping by and uh, yeah, thanks, sharing. Sharon. Yeah. A couple of your um, experiences with us, and um, again, Jeffrey Lee Campbell, uh, and get the book, Do Stand So Close, My Improbable Adventures with Sting. Yeah, so. I, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 thank you very much for inviting me on the show, and thanks for supporting the book, and uh, uh, it's great talking to you. Thank you again so much. I appreciate mm-hmm. your call. Okay. Thank you. Uh Bye-bye.